All right, so we're in the Gospel of John. In a study that we're calling The Last Night. It's the last night of Jesus with the disciples before he goes to the cross. And the Lord's really preparing his disciples in these chapters to, um, you know, take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so we've been learning a lot of good truths from the Lord to both prepare us, take the gospel out, but also to be encouraged in our walk with him because he wants a relationship with us and, and uh, he, he, you know, he's given us some sweet truths to, to draw deeper. So we're going to be in chapter 16 tonight. We're going to look at verses 5 through 15, a study on the Holy Spirit. I'm calling it not by, not by might, as we'll, as we'll see as we dive into it. So Father, thanks so much for your grace, Lord, and we thank you for the power of your Spirit. We thank you that he is with us, Lord, and he has empowered us. He's here to instruct us and teach us. And Lord, I pray that we would tonight just really have a greater sense of, of his presence in our life. And, and Lord, that we would really grow in our relationship with him. Lord, you told us, Lord, that you have given us another comforter, another of the same kind for us to, to know and to walk and to um, dwell with, Lord, to be led by. And so, Lord, we want to be led by the Spirit. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us do that as we walk through this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt like you were the underdog in the spiritual battle that you walk in this life? Now, when I think of underdog, I think of those crazy scenes from like World War I and World War II where you see the trench warfare. I mean, specifically in World War I. I learned I was at the Massey's house last week, and you know, he goes to Russia a lot, and I was shocked to learn that Russia lost 390 million people in World War One. That's a lot of people. I mean, there's, there's probably more. I mean, but you know, they, and they're in the trench warfare as they were just trenched down, and you know, the the new establishment of guns and military tactics weren't really up to speed with transportation. Man, they would just go from trench to trench, and they would just mow people down as they would continue to launch line after line after line. Other stories you hear about those countries, you know, issuing one gun to two soldiers and saying, okay, hey, you guys go out together and, you know, you, you take the gun after he, he falls. Now, this is not the Christian life. This is not the, the battle that we're in. This, is, this doesn't describe us. We're, we're not the people who are the underdogs here. But rather, the good news is, is we're actually victorious in our walk with the Lord. The Lord has given us victory in spiritual battles. In a sense, we're kind of like the Avengers, the Avenger movies. Now, if you ever watch an Avenger movie, you know that they're going to win, right? I mean, they're not all going to die because then the movies wouldn't be made anymore, but so they're going to win. So I, I just spoiled all the movies for you right there. Now, yes, we will face battles. Yes, we will be banged up, you know, and dinged up at times, but we can know that we are equipped to face the mission that Jesus has for us. We know that as we abide in Christ, the Lord has given us victory. We have the armor of God. That's better than Iron Man's suit. I mean, you know, Iron Man's suit's fitted for him, you know, and he can do a lot of stuff in that suit, but we have the armor of God. I mean, we have the helmet of salvation. You know, we have the shield of faith. We have the sandals that have been shod with the gospel of peace. I mean, you know, we have the breastplate of righteousness. All these things that the Lord has given us to go out into battle, and by applying these truths, these are how we stay victorious. We have the word of God, which is more effective than Thor's hammer. 
I mean, the word of God, I believe, is even called a hammer in, in the scriptures. But the word of God is precise. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide the soul and the spirit. And that's one of the only weapons that the Bible describes for the soldier of Jesus Christ. We're told there in Ephesians 6 that we're given the armor of God. Then he says, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we have a sword. But tonight, as we'll see, we have a better leader than Captain America. We have the Holy Spirit who's with us to guide us, to lead us into victory. Now, Jesus was going to leave his disciples, and he was going to give them a commission, as we'll see later on. But before he gives them this commission, he wants to teach them about the essential ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because they're going to take this commission, the gospel, and they're going to storm the kingdom of darkness. And they need to know the ministry of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit before they would take this commission out to the world. And Jesus wants to teach them about it here in this, on this last night. He, and really, he does it a lot. Think about it. This was given probably in a, a time of a couple hours. And this is already the third time that he's referenced the ministry of the Spirit. We've, we've seen it in chapter 14, chapter 15, now in chapter 16. Talking a lot about the Spirit because the Spirit's ministry in our life is essential for us to walk in victory as we take the gospel to the world, but also as we walk in victory in the spiritual battles that we face in this life. And so tonight, my prayer is that we would be encouraged that the Lord has given us victory in whatever situation he's placed us in. Yeah, we might be dinged up here and there, but the Lord will give us victory as we abide in him. Also, we need to be exhorted that we're to continue to follow closely to the spirit to lead us and to guide us. We're not to walk in the flesh, but we're to walk in the spirit. So we begin with our first point in verses 5 through 11. We see the work of the Spirit in the world. Now we've all felt like the, like the army of one as we're surrounded by non-believers. Maybe you find yourself in a workplace. I work out at the Navy base and sometimes you, know, you feel like, man, I'm like the only believer out here in, in this workplace with a bunch of carnal people. And it's easy to feel like that, that army of one. Or you feel like, man, the mission's all about me. It's all, it's all on my shoulders to to make sure I know how to minister to this person or this person's an intellectual. Well, what if I don't say the right things and you know, hopefully they'll believe the message that I'm gonna have because I'm gonna communicate it apologetically and things like that. Well, the good news that Jesus teaches us here is that it's not based on us. It's based upon the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not on our performance, but it's upon our relying upon him to, to do the work. Look at verse five. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And so Jesus, again, reminded his disciples that he was going away. He told them this at the end of chapter 13. He says, guys, I'm going to go away. And their hearts sunk. And he launched into that chapter 14 where he encouraged them by giving them seven truths to encourage them. Now he reminds them again. And this really bummed the disciples out. But he says here that it was essential that he would go away and that he would definitely go away. Soon, Jesus would die, be buried three day, for three days and then resurrect and ascend into heaven. And so Jesus knew exactly what was gonna happen. It wasn't as like these liberals you see on TV say, well, it actually happened to him and so his disciples went on later on and just kind of made it up. No, Jesus knew exactly what was coming his way. He knew that he was gonna die on the cross for the sins of the world, be buried for three days and, and, and rise again and ascend into heaven. Now, this reminder shocked the disciples and it distracted them. You know, you ever been talking to somebody and something really distracts you and you can't really make out what the person's saying? You're like, oh, what, what was that again? Kind of thing. And this is kind of like how it was for the disciples here. Jesus dropped this bomb on them again and, 
and they were just kind of like, they were kind of looking at Jesus, but they couldn't really receive what he was saying. They were, they were so shocked by it. And Jesus points it out here. He says, you're not asking me where I'm going. You know, because I've said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. So they weren't interested in, hey, Lord, so where are you going? Explain to us again. Or what's going to happen in the future? They were only concerned with their situation, the fact that Jesus was leaving them and they're going to be on their own. The Lord wasn't going to establish the kingdom right then as they wanted, but the Lord was going to lead them. And so even though the disciples were bummed out that Jesus was going to establish his kingdom right then, the Lord was going to still minister to them and work out his plan. And I like that. Even though sometimes we don't understand the work of God in our life, you know, and sometimes we might not even respond to it with the right attitude. Nevertheless, the Lord is going to still work out his will in our life. And that's an encouragement. It's not based on us. You know, the Lord is the, is the strong one. He's the one who's on the throne and he will work out his will in our life and, and he will work in our hearts even sometimes when we find ourselves, um, you know, struggling or, or having a hard time trusting the Lord's will. Now the Lord goes on in verse seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And so the fact that Jesus was um, going to um, tell his disciples the truth here doesn't mean that everything else he said was a lie or kind of a half-truth, that he kind of just says, yeah, you know, I, I didn't really know about those things, but now I'm going to tell you something about I really know. That's, that's not what he's saying here at all. John uses this phrase often in his gospel, and he uses it to show us that Jesus gave truth statements. Like, hey, guys, it's important to listen to this because this is an essential. This is a true statement I want you to really hold on to. We will call this an essential doctrine. The essentials we learn from this verse is that Jesus had to die, he had to resurrect, he had to ascend, and the Spirit had to come. And really, when you think about these things, these are the things that make the gospel of grace possible. You see, Jesus had to die on the cross for our sins in order to atone for our sins. Jesus had to rise bodily again from the dead. This was to prove that the atonement was paid for, but also he was the first fruits of the resurrection. The ascension is essential because if he did not ascend, then the spirit could not come. And the work of the spirit in a believer's life is what makes you born again, makes you alive, and it also transforms you. It sanctifies you as you, as you walk with the Holy Spirit um, day by day. And so essentials are those things which makes the gospel possible. And Jesus says, hey, I'm gonna tell you the truth right now. It's important that I go away because if I don't go away, then this gospel of grace isn't gonna be possible. And um, so Jesus is gonna tell them this here. Now the word advantage here, it's your advantage that I go away, can be, read, can be rendered beneficial or good. And so the Lord's saying, hey, this, me going away, you guys are bummed out about it, but this is actually gonna be for your good. This is gonna be for your good and God's glory. Soon he would send the helper to them. And he said, if I send him to you, it'll be to your advantage. Now, two things that we can learn about the Holy Spirit here. First, he's a he, he's a him. The Holy Spirit is a person, he's not an it. You never see anybody in the Bible ever refer to it. Like, I feel it coming upon me, or kind, of, kind of thing like that. We never see that. Always refer to him, he, right? Personal, personal pronouns. The Spirit is a person, just like Jesus and the Father. The Holy Spirit has an intellect. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 2. He says that no one knows the heart of God but the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit also has emotions. He can be grieved. We see that in Ephesians 4.30. 
And the Holy Spirit has a will. He distributes gifts as he wills. And we see that in uh, 1 Corinthians 12. So the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a force. He's not a power. And he's also God. He's the third person of the Trinity. And it's important that we know that the Holy Spirit's a person because Jesus says that I'm going to send you the helper. In, four, in chapter 14, verse 16, he called him another helper. And as we talked about, that word another is another of the same kind. And so Jesus was with the disciples. He was there speaking the words of God to them, encouraging them, leading them. They left everything to follow him. And now he was going away. And the Lord said, don't be bummed out because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And he's another person just like me. He's the third person of the Trinity. He has the same nature as me and the Father. And he's going to take my place and he's going to lead you. And he's not going to leave like I am, but he's going to guide you in all truth and he's going to continue to minister to you. So you and I, we have the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit in our life just as the disciples did when they walked with Jesus. It's pretty amazing. We think, oh man, it would be awesome if we could just been with Jesus and walk with him. Well, we have the Holy Spirit who wants to teach us and guide us just as Jesus did with his disciples. Now, another way to render the word helper is advocate. And this word has been used of legal assistants who pleaded the cause or pleaded the case. And so, yeah, he would come to help them, but specifically he would come to do the work of pleading and, and, um, and ministering. We see that in verse 8. When he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, there are distinct ministries of the Spirit, and this is one of them. It's the work of the Spirit in the world. Now, the phrase, when he comes, is probably going to refer to the day of Pentecost. It's when the Spirit was poured out, and this new, unique work began in the church age. Now, because Jesus is talking about the Spirit coming, that doesn't mean that the Spirit hasn't been in operation throughout the Bible, because he, he was. If you look in the Old Testament, you see the work of the Spirit. He often came upon people. He filled people. And also when you read the gospels, you know, you see Jesus, he was overflow with the spirit, you know, and also um, Jesus told the disciples in chapter 14 that the spirit was with them and he would later be in them. And so there was a work of the spirit in the gospels and also in the old Testament, but there will be a unique work done in the church age, the age in which you and I live today. Sometimes we take it for granted, but we live in a very distinct age of grace in the outpouring of the Spirit in which every believer is permanently indwelled with the Spirit and also the Lord is pouring out His Spirit upon all flesh. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Now, one of the unique ways that the Spirit is going to work in the age in which we live is He's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. Now, concerning this word world, we use it a lot, and Warren Wiersbe kind of clarifies it for us. He says the term is used in Scripture in at least three different ways. It can mean the created world. The world was made by him in John 1.10. The world of humanity, for God so loved the world, that's John 3.16, or society apart from God and opposed to God. We sometimes use the phrase the world system to define this special meaning. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here, the world. Now, this world system refers to people, plans, organizations, activities, philosophies, and values of non-believers. A lot of these things are very, part of the very culture of our society. But we're told in Scripture that behind these things is Satan. 1 John 5.19 says that the entire world is held under the sway of the wicked one. And also the glue that holds this thing together that keeps it swaying, 1 John 2.16 says, 
all things that are in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. These three things are kind of the, the things that glue the fallen world that we live in together. You can classify a lot of these things in these three categories. And this is the world in which we live. The disciples, they would be the ones who would lay the foundation of the church in this dark world. They would find themselves as a light in the midst of darkness, in the midst of a world that is being swayed by the wicked one. Now the disciples, they were not to isolate themselves from the world, but they were to infiltrate the world with the gospel. And the way that they were to do that is by walking in the spirit. The Lord would equip them. The Lord said, hey, you're gonna store in the kingdom of darkness. It's gonna be a spiritual battle, but I've given you the Holy Spirit and I've dispatched the spirit into the world to convict the world of sin. Yes, the world in the sense of all people, all mankind, but also as it, as it deals with this fallen system of, of Satan as well. The spirit would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. Conviction refers to guilt, but it's not just a feeling. It's a spiritual and intellectual understanding of truth. So the spirit, I mean, he's not just gonna give people a warm and fuzzy kind of, you know, warm and fuzzy feeling. Ooh, I, you know, I think the spirit's working on my heart. No, he's actually gonna convict. He's gonna reason with people. He's gonna strive with mankind as he did in the Old Testament. You know, and that's what God said. My spirit should not always strive with flesh as it was in the days of Noah. Now, Jesus described three specific ways that the spirit is gonna convict people. And we see that in verses nine through 11. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So first, the Spirit would convict the world of sin because they reject Jesus. Now, yes, the Spirit convicts for all sin, right? Because all sin is an offense against God. But the unpardonable sin, the only sin that's not forgiven, the Bible says, is the rejection of Jesus Christ. That's the sin that's not forgiven. If a person dies without Jesus Christ... There is no forgiveness. There is no second chance. They'll be separated from God in a Christless eternity. Sin is missing the mark. And the mark is God's perfection. And only Jesus is perfect because he, only, only he is both God and man. So only by faith in Jesus Christ can a person be saved. And so a person commits this unpardonable sin when they reject Jesus. They demonstrate the fact that they are, their heart is separated from God when they reject the Lord. Second, the Spirit would convict the world of righteousness. Righteousness is to walk right, to obey God's truths. The Spirit convicts the world of righteousness by pointing to notice to the resurrection of Jesus. He says, because I've departed from this world. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension is God's demonstration that he accepted the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Anybody can claim to be God. Anybody can claim to die for your sin. But in order to prove it, you need to rise again bodily from the dead. And that's what Christ did. The resurrection is our proof that we're justified by faith in him. That's what Paul says. We've been, you know, we've been declared righteous and we, he's also been raised for our justification. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the greatest demonstration of righteousness. If you wanna be righteous, you have to believe in Christ. You have to give your life to him. Third, the spirit convicts the world that the ruler has been judged. Now, what does this mean? Well, Jesus talked about binding the strong man in relationship to his works and to his ministry. Jesus told his disciples that greater works than these they will do. So in a sense, as the disciples go out and preach the gospel 
and live lives by the power of the Spirit and see people delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. In a sense, it's a demonstration that the enemy has been judged and disarmed on the cross. Yes, the enemy is still active. Don't get me wrong. I mean, he's still active, but nevertheless, it's a demonstration that he's been judged on the cross. Now, the Holy Spirit can do this in many different ways. I mean, you know, God's ways are beyond our ways. His ways are beyond finding out. But the usual way that this is an operation, this ministry of the Spirit to convict is through the gospel of grace. Think about these ministries of the Spirit in light of the gospel. Here's what Paul said the gospel was in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. He says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And so the Spirit, his work in the world operates on human hearts through the gospel. As the gospel is preached, he is declaring to mankind the fact that these truths are so. The fact that, hey, you're a sinner. You need Christ. He's risen again from the dead. Demonstration that your sin can be forgiven. And the fact that the enemy has been judged and the fact that you can be changed, you can be delivered from the kingdom of darkness and placed to the kingdom of light. Paul says, we have, we, we've been given the gospel, which is the power of God to salvation. We think of it as just a message, but it's the power of God to salvation. And we need to let it loose. Now, this is an encouragement because remember, we talked about being in this battle, in this world of darkness, sometimes feeling like you're the only person. But it's not just you. It's the spirit at work through you and through the gospel. It should encourage us, but also it should exhort us to make sure that we're getting the gospel out and that we're not hindering the work of the Spirit. We actually can hinder the work of the Spirit by misrepresenting the gospel, by not preaching the gospel at all. We need to allow the Spirit to work. He will work on non-believers' hearts, but it'll work in, in an even more powerful and greater way as we get the gospel out in a clear presentation and the demonstration of, of His grace as we walk with Him. Second, verses 12 through 15, we see the work of the Spirit in a believer's life. So now Jesus is going to start talking about this work with you and I as believers. And I kind of want to focus on the three works of the Spirit in our lives. The first work we talked about back in John 14, I kind of just want to review it real fast as it relates to this. In John 14, verses 16 through 17, you can flip back there if you want. If you have an iPad, you can scroll back. Jesus told his disciples, And I will pray the Father, and he'll give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so Jesus told disciples that soon they would experience this inward work of the Holy Spirit in their life. Soon they would be indwelt by the spirit because of their faith in Jesus. We call this being born again. The Lord talked about that in John three sixteen. He talked to Nicodemus. He says, the spirit comes in you and he lives in you. Peter refers to this as regeneration. You see, when mankind is born, you're born dead in trespasses and sins. You're born spiritually dead. Well, as the grace of God operates on a person's heart and a person believes the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you and he makes you alive again. He regenerates you. You're now alive. You have an immaterial nature. Everybody's born with immaterial nature, but your immaterial nature is dead. You have no relationship with God. You're spiritually discerned. But as you believe in Christ through the grace of God, 
The Spirit lives in you. He makes you alive. And now your, your immaterial nature becomes alive to God. And you can have this relationship with God as your spirit communes with God's spirit. God also declares you righteous. And then he places the spirit in you to continually transform you day by day. We call that sanctification as you're made more and more like Christ daily through his work. That's the first way that the Lord works on a believer's heart. He comes and lives in you, but also the spirit is with you. And that's what the Lord talks about in our passage here in John 16. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. I don't know why I thought about this, but just like Charlie in the Wonkavator had many things to learn and experience, he couldn't understand them all now. Even so, I'm sorry, if you're an old Wonka fan, I like the old one better than the new one. I'm, you, know, you might hate me because of that, but it's true. <laughs> So, I mean, I, I, you know, I just had to wake you guys up here. Kind of thing. So, I mean, Jesus said, hey, guys, I want to teach you guys a lot right now. I have a lot to tell you, but you can't bear it all now. I mean, no doubt Jesus wanted to teach them about God's future plan for Israel. He wanted to teach them about, you know, what he would do in the church age. But yet they weren't able to receive it. He didn't want to just, he already blew their mind enough the fact that he was leaving. And they couldn't really grasp it. He didn't want to blow their mind anymore. So the Lord gives us what, what, you know, what we need here. And so, so he tells them about uh, this work of the Spirit. He goes on and says that the Spirit would come and he would guide them into all truth. Now, Jesus did lead his disciples in truth. He said, hey, the words I speak to you, I speak to you from the Father. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. He says, have not you seen the Father? Don't you see my works and my words, the things I speak to you? You know, they're exactly what the Father would speak. And Jesus said, the Spirit, when he comes, he will lead you in all truth. For he'll take of what is mine and declare it to you. And so, in a sense, the Spirit would come and continue to lead the disciples in the truth. Jesus wouldn't be able to tell them everything about the church age and all that. He would ascend into heaven, but the Spirit would come and he would take up that place in the believer's life and teach them. He would lead them. He would guide them. How would he do this? Well, first of all, he would point them to the past. In the Great Commission, the Lord said, go out and make disciples. Then he says, teaching them all things that I've taught you. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And the Spirit would do that. He would bring to their remembrance, John 15 says, all those things that the Lord taught them. And they would go out and they would share the, the, the life of Christ. It was, this was done orally. As they would go out and share the gospel and they would share about the life of Christ and the Spirit would work on their heart and they would, they would have accurate accounts of the life of Jesus. Well, the Spirit will later write, uh, lead some men to write four Gospels. The Lord led Matthew to write a Gospel to the Jews. He led John, one of his disciples, to write a Gospel to show that Jesus is the Son of God. And then he would later, later lead Mark to hook up with Peter, and Peter would give him the information to write his Gospel. And then later Luke would hook up with Paul, and Paul would give him the info. And also Luke did his research too and, and, and wrote his Gospel. And so the Spirit would come and lead these guys in all truth, and he would do that by pointing them back to the Gospels. And so here, in a sense, as the Lord talking, is talking to his disciples here, he's talking, hey, guys, the Lord's life is going to be revealed as I point you into truth about all these things. But also the Lord would point forward. The Spirit would come, and he would tell them things to come. And that's talking about prophecy. This will later be revealed to the church. 
often we see that term mystery in the scriptures. Paul said, I behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. These are things that the spirit would reveal to them in the church age about the things that are coming. After the day of Pentecost, there was like an explosion of prophecy. If you think about it. I mean, everything they said, oh, this is why it was written because of this. Oh, that was a prophecy because of that. That was a prophecy because of this. Oh, this is what God said about his coming kingdom in, in the future. It was like an explosion of prophecy because the spirit was telling them things to come. A lot of these things would later be written in the epistles, but also in the book of Revelation as he would lead these men to write these things. Uh, I like what Norman Geisler says. He says that the gospels is a manifestation of Christ. The book of Revelation is a consummation of Christ, but the epistles is the explanation of Christ. It reveals to us all those things about who the Lord is, but also his will for our life. And that's what Jesus takes up here in verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit would not come to draw attention to himself, but he would come to point people to Christ. And he would do that, first of all, by prophecy, by leading people into truth, both future truth, but also prophetically as he would take the word and minister to the hearts of people. But he would later lead the apostles to write inspired epistles, ones that we have today. And as they're written, Paul said, circulate those things around the churches because they're written not by man, but, but by God. And so the spirit is in us. He's transforming us daily through, through his power, but he's also with us to lead us into truth. That's an encouragement, but also it's an exhortation. We need to make sure that we don't grieve or quench the spirit. Well, how do we do that? Well, by not being in the word, by not walking in the spirit and obeying him, by not allowing the Lord to work his gifts through our life as as he walks with us and ministers to us. One last thing I want to close with, it's the spirit's work upon us. Luke 11, 13 says, Jesus says, but you then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now this is the final work of the Spirit, as this third work of the Spirit as the Spirit would come upon the believers. He was in them, he was with them, but later he would come upon them. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and the end of the earth. The Spirit would come, come inside the, the disciples in John 20. The Lord breathed on them and said, receive the Spirit. But later the Lord said, but before you guys take this commission out to the entire earth, I want you guys to wait because I want the Spirit to come upon you. And the coming upon the Spirit or the baptism of the Spirit, the empowerment of the Spirit is that. It's an empowerment for the work of ministry. It's a one-time act when a person by faith realizes, man, I need God's power to fight this spiritual battle, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And if you believe it by faith, you'll receive it. They're, they're not, you know, there's not necessarily a sign that has to come with it, but you believe it by faith that you receive it and the Lord will give it to you. It's a promise. And so because it's a promise, the Lord will give it to you if you ask. Once you're baptized with the Spirit, we see throughout the scriptures that the believers are commanded to continually go on being filled with the Spirit. And that's why we see in Acts 4, they were baptized with the Spirit, but they pray, Lord, fill us with boldness that your spirits, you know, that your disciples would be able to go out and speak the word boldness. And the word says that they were all filled with the Spirit and the place where they were was shaken. And they were filled with boldness and they went out and fought the battle once again. 
I want to end where we left off. We're in a battle, and many of you might be feeling it tonight. But you know, there's good news. We have the Holy Spirit. Let's not leave his side, but let's abide in him and abide in his power. The battle that we face might feel like a mountain. But you know, the good news is the Bible says that that mountain can be cast in the sea because it's not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Amen.